Um, we've been looking all semester at uh, basically this idea of Jesus in the Old Testament. And tonight, we continue with uh, the account of Noah and the flood. Now, uh, there was more to Noah's life than the flood, uh, and, there was, and he was certainly the, sort of the prominent figure when we read about this biblical narrative that is called the flood. And as you may or may not know, this Friday, uh, I guess in two days, the Russell Crowe movie Noah opens up. And so I thought it would be appropriate to sort of wait on doing Noah until this week. I was going to do it way back in January, but I thought, you guys are probably going to go see this movie. You're going to have questions about it. So hopefully, I'm going to preempt all of those questions tonight and, and actually tell you a little bit about what the Bible says uh, about the text. No, I'm not anti-Hollywood. Yes, go see the movie and enjoy it. Um, but um, I think it's important for you to see what the Scriptures teach about Noah and the flood. Now, uh, we didn't read the first thing about the flood because it happens over about three chapters. And so, just know that it's in there. Yes, I know that we did not read it. And if you were unfamiliar with it, I'll give you a quick backstory. God came to a man said, Noah, he said, build a wooden ark. And you're going to put a ton of animals in it and then I'm going to flood the earth. And then after about a year of the water raising, yes, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but it took a long time for the waters to recede, about a year or so. And, uh, and then Noah was, he, he came out of the ark. So that's the story in, in just, I mean, in, in the gist of it right there. I know we skipped over all that because I want to highlight some of the bigger picture things. A couple of qu- points I want to make before we jump in. A lot of the times when we come to the Bible, we have questions about the Bible that the Bible is not afraid of us asking, but they're not the intent of the text itself. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we can read in the text, well, I want to know, like, well, what happened to the dinosaurs? Okay? And frankly, the Bible is not concerned about dinosaurs. So to ask questions about dinosaurs in this text is to ask questions that the text doesn't even raise. And so faithful reading of the text is to not worry about dinosaurs tonight. Does that make sense? And there's a whole host of other issues that we could talk about, but tonight I want to deal with with the text before us, so to speak. So I think that's very, very important. And then secondly, sort of by way of introduction, has anybody ever heard of the city called Verosha Crete? It's the, the island Crete. Has anybody ever heard of Verosha or Varosha? I don't know how you properly say it. But what's really interesting about this city is, is that in the 70s, Probably in the early 70s, it bloomed up like a uh, tourist town. How many of you are maybe going to the beach this, uh, this next week? You're probably going to go somewhere. It's going to be beautiful. There's going to be white sands. There's going to be beautiful turquoise oceans. And there's going to be development. And it's going to be a wonderful vacationing spot. And that is exactly what Verosha Crete was in the early 70s. Until 1974. There were about 39,000, 40,000 residents in this, in this little uh, vacationing resort town. And almost overnight, it shut down. Why? The Turks and the Greeks were at war with one another. The Turks invaded this part of Crete. They cordoned off everything and, and, and everybody else had to leave, if you were a native of the island, you had to leave this area. And to this day, 
If you were to go to this town, it looks like time has frozen. There's abandoned uh, hotel rooms. There are boats still anchored up on the shore. There are cranes where buildings were going up that are still up. In fact, if you look at some of the photos on the internet, you can see that people left their clothes in the rooms with their suitcases wide open. The city shut down. Now, here's why I tell you that story. It is beautiful if you look at the photos. It is glorious. It is a beautiful setting. And yet, it has been left in ruin. This beautiful world, so to speak, being left in absolute ruin, and it's atrocious now, so to speak. Why do I share this story with you? I want you to begin to think about this question. The Bible reminds us, among other things, that the world that God created and intended is not what we presently have. And the story of Noah and the flood gets at this idea about what God is going to do about it. And how He intends to remake, how to deal with it, and how to deal with what ultimately it points to uh, as, it, as it relates to God's relationship to both man and the world that He has made. Noah and the Flood tells us that story. Yes, it's a cute Sunday school uh, story. If you grew up around the church, you know about Noah and two by two on the ark, so the animals went, and, and that's all fine and dandy. But tonight, I want to begin to show you this. I want you to see tonight that the concept of grace and judgment go hand-to-hand in the story of Noah and the flood. In fact, as one author would put it, it really is the story about grace in the midst of judgment. And so we're going to look tonight at that text. And my hope for you tonight is this. This is why I think that you should listen to me tonight. Because all of us, at some point or another, know what it is like to fail to not measure up. We don't know what to do with the fact that we are broken and we long for redemption. We long for renewal. It's Wednesday. How many of you have already blown it this week? Either with your friends or with God. This is the story that you need to hear tonight because in the end, it really is a message of hope and renewal. So my two main headings tonight are this. The flood is really an account or an act of judgment, and it's a flood is also an act of salvation. So those are our two main headings tonight. Let's jump in taking a look at the idea that the flood is an act of judgment. Well, uh, first off, from the from the start of the story, we see that God sends the flood in the first six, you know, four or five verses here that we've talked about in, in chapter 6. We see this, "...the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and that every intention in the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." That is not good news. That is about as honest as it gets about the human condition. Now, you may not like that idea. You may have a view of humanity that says, man at his core is basically good. And that what we need is just a little bit of help. Because at his core, man is just in need of a little bit of help. Things really aren't that bad. 
But I want to tell you that that's not the biblical view of the way that Bible views what man is. The Bible tells us that at our core, that you and me are actually what this text says. That we have wickedness in our heart all the time. To do and intend nothing but evil. That's pretty honest. It's pretty searing, actually. Because in our world, we don't want to deal with that. We want to bury sin. We want to bury the, what is most true about us. But look at how the Scripture comes to us, and it's incredibly honest about who we really are. And you know what? There's, there's, there's good news in that, because it frees you to be honest about who you really are. You don't have to pretend that you're, not, that you're something you're not. You see, I like to say this. When people say, you know, Ryan, uh, you hurt me, or you're X, Y, and Z, they're genuine, they're coming to me. I can actually honestly say to them, you know, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> it's way worse. You know, can you say that about yourself? The Scripture can. You're a liar. Well, you know what? You don't know the first thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, gets way, it goes downhill from there. That's the way the Scriptures speak about us. The news is not good. But here's where it gets even worse. It's not only that the news is not good. Um, I want to suggest to you that the news is actually... The news that is bad is because God Himself has decided to do something about it. I want to share this quote with you real quick. It comes from um, this guy named John Calvin. He says this about the human heart. He says the human heart is an idol factory that's constantly churning up things that it wants to worship. And it says this, that every one of us from our mother's womb as an expert in inventing idols. That's sort of the indictment. And here is what comes against it. God decides to wipe it from the, from the earth. Like an iPhone data sweep, deleting all that is on it. God wipes the earth clean. He wipes it clean from the wickedness there. Now, you might think that I'm crazy for saying this on a college campus, but this really is, hang with me, this really is a good thing. You say, what? You think the flood was real? Did God really kill people by the flood? And then what about the problem of judgment? You see, I can't get into all of those objections and honest questions right now, but I do want to deal with one for just a moment. Yes, I realize that I said that to have the bad news delivered is actually good. We're going to look at that in a second. But I really want to push pause for a moment and deal with this idea that God is a God who actually judges and why we need it. Listen. The idea of a God who judges is not popular. I realize that. The sentiment often gets expressed something like this. Look, I don't really believe in a God who judges. I believe in a God who loves. Does that that sort of make sense? You may have heard, you may have said, you may hold that view yourself. Underneath it is an understanding that the idea of judgment and love are mutually exclusive, that they are separate ideas that can't ever come together. Okay, And I want to suggest to you a couple of things. That when the idea of, God, that of a God of love gets promoted over a God who judges sin, something else rises to the surface. An author named Tim Keller reasons like this in a book, and I think it's incredibly poignant for us to consider. He asks this question, what does it cost your God of love to actually love 
What does it cost him to love? Here's what, here's what he's getting at. In other words, is it a costly sort of love? Or is it an ethereal, non-distinct, sort of vague love that costs him absolutely nothing? You see, all of us know from real experience that real love is costly. It always means saying no to something. It always does. You see, therefore, an attempt to make God more loving by eliminating the notion of judgment, we eliminate the costliness of love. I'm going to illustrate this in a second. And then in effect, we lessen the very love we long to make rich and great. Some say, I can't live with a God of judgment. But the Scriptures tell us, you can't live without a God of judgment. Listen. Have you ever been wronged? Ever? You need a God of judgment. Because you can't call it wrong. And there will be no vindication for that wrong. It is and it stands and it was not wrong. Because there is no higher moral category by which, or moral standard, by which to call what was done to you wrong. Only a God of judgment gives you that. Because otherwise you're just left with a God who loves and sees everything as loving and good. So any abuse that you have ever suffered, any death that has ever come to one of your family members, don't you dare call it wrong. Don't you dare do it. Because it's not. Not unless you have a God who looks at real wickedness and says that it's wrong and it will be dealt with. Listen, I want to suggest to you that that is actually really good news that God would actually judge. Here is why. My friend Kevin points out the hard news that is delivered is an incredibly gracious when it is delivered. Think about this. Think about when you go to a doctor and let's say you have a headache and it is raging. It is enough to make you go to the emergency room. It is boom, it has hit you. Okay? They do tests. They say, we got to check on this because we think it might be something that's very serious called bacterial meningitis. It's an infection that happens in your spine and in your brain. Now look, the only way they do that is they take a spinal tap and they check your fluids on that. Well, so they've done that and then now they're in their lab room and they're running their test and it comes back positive. How loving is it of them to come back to you and instead of delivering the hard news to say, there's no problem. Go home and take a couple of Tylenol. Anybody with a medical background says you're dead in 24 to 48 hours. To deliver the hard news is an incredibly loving thing. Why? Because once you know the problem, you can have the real cure administered. Real hope can be had. But to deny the real problem is to perpetuate a cycle of wickedness and evil. My friend mentions this. He says, in other words, without the bad news about us, we are left in the hopeless situation of trying to figure out the problem to something that we can't fix. Wow. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about hearing the bad news is in a way a very gracious thing? Here's my question to you. Are you willing to hear it? C.S. Lewis mentions this in one of his interviews that he has. Let me read this quote to you. Read along with me. He's talking about the importance of saying it's not enough 
to want to get rid of one's sins, he says. We also need to believe in the one who saves us from our sins. Not only do we need to recognize that we are sinners, we need to believe in a Savior who takes away sin. Matthew Arnold once wrote, Nor does the being hungry prove that we have bread. And some, because we know we are sinners, it does not follow that we are saved. Wow. Think about that. Because we know that we are sinners, it does not follow that we are saved. We must reach out for something. We must need something. We must actually look for something to rescue us from our state. God brings His judgment on sin. Why? Because it is destroying the things that He loves. Man and the world around Him. The world that He has made. And to do so, to deliver this judgment, is an act of profound love. It doesn't just show us, don't mess with God. No, it is an act of grace. And that is what we see secondly in our next point. That the flood is an act of incredible salvation. I'm turning over to chapter 9 now, moving away from chapter 6. I think when we think about salvation, the act of the flood being an act of salvation, it's helpful to think of it underneath two main headings. One, that salvation is about preservation and that salvation is about promise. First, I want to deal with this idea of salvation. How can this be so? Well, we look to Noah to see this. The story that we didn't read tells us that Noah and his sons entered an ark and that they are saved from the storm and flood and from the judgment. They and the animals were saved. Yes, sin was great, but God's grace would prevail. In Noah, we see God keeping humanity alive and getting, from an earthly perspective, a fresh start. Do you remember last week when I spoke with you that the story of the Old Testament really is God dealing with two major themes? God preserving His people and keeping His promise in the light of external threats, like we looked like last week against the Philistines, and then the sin of His own people. We see that clearly in this text. Look at Noah and his family. As they come out of the ark, God says to them, look at verse 9-1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Y'all, this is exactly what gets said in Genesis 1-28 when God puts man on the planet in the first place. Noah was safe in the ark. He comes out of it and God gives fresh grace and a new start. That's exactly what is being implied in this text. This, this picture of Noah leaving, he's been brought through the judgment, and now there is a fresh start on life, is a mark of incredible salvation and incredible grace. I want you to see salvation then being not only about just getting away from the bad stuff, but it being a delivering through it. That grace always comes in the context of real judgment. Think about what God did. Do you see this? He didn't just save Noah, right? What else was on the ark? The animals. The created order. The world around Him. And in fact, though our text tells us that He, in verse 11, 9-11, it says this, it says, And I establish My covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The earth literally wasn't destroyed. It was 
It was corrupted. It was ruined. I mean, it's, it's obvious because Noah leaves the ark and goes into the earth. Okay? So even the earth is preserved. And this is what I really want you to see. And I'm going to take a little bit of time to detour on this because I think it's so important. I want you to see that the biblical idea of salvation, the one that if you're a Christian and you are familiar with, is an incredibly physical one. You say, what? What do you mean? A lot of the times, we think about salvation being something like this. It is about getting my, my little, keeping my butt out of hell. And the most important thing is that it gets me my little, get out of, get, it's fire insurance. We sort of conceive of salvation in that way. And I want to suggest to you that that is not the biblical idea of what salvation is. Salvation in the biblical Christian understanding is incredibly physical. The ace in the hole is this. Jesus Himself, when He was resurrected from the dead, took on His body. Fingernails and hair. Ligaments and blood vessels. This is the idea of Christian salvation. Most of us think about salvation like this. We think, you know what? Heaven, salvation ultimately, is going to look something like this. We're sitting around singing cheesy Christian songs on clouds, playing harps, we've sprouted wings, and we look like fat little angel babies. That's what we sort of think salvation is. But this text reminds us that nothing could be further from the truth. Look at what the Apostle John writes at the end, at the end of his book of Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then listen, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Look, Christian salvation isn't about us going anywhere. It is about heaven coming to us. It's an incredible physical thing. Moreover, moreover, look what Paul says about Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the creation itself. For he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. The earth itself longs to be liberated. Why? Because it has a future. What does all of this mean? At the end of the story, I want you to see that it is an incredibly physical existence. The Christian salvation is an incredibly embodied and physical salvation. And we see that from this text. God doesn't save Noah in the ark and then say, go be little spirits, fat cherub babies, float around, find the clouds, and enjoy. Here's some harps. Make music. What do you think of heaven? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever considered it? It's incredibly physical, and why does this matter? Ready? Listen. If you are a Christian, and you do not conceive of new heavens and new earth, In physical terms, you better all leave right now whatever you're doing and go be missionaries. And be about the business of soul saving. Because you're wasting your time. 
But guess what? That's not Christianity. Because God cares about stuff. He doesn't make junk, as my seminary professor would say, and He doesn't junk what He has made. So, are you a fashion merchandising major? Guess what? I've got good news for you. Who do you think conceived the idea of fabrics and textiles? God Himself did. So go. Go make beautiful things. In so doing, image Image Him by making beautiful stuff. Is it wildlife and ecology? God Himself made the world that you're going into. Care for it well. We're going to live in it forever. Is it medicine or nursing? Who do you think made the bodies that you're going to care for? God did. And by caring for these bodies, you are caring for what God made and loves. Is it business? Who do you think invented commerce? and the exchange of goods and services, and all of the necessary things that keep these things going. What do you think the new heavens and new earth are going to be? It says it here, a city. A city. What goes on in cities? Commerce. Do you hear what I'm saying? Your lives really matter now. You don't have to be like me, though some of you might. You don't have to do ministry for a living. It matters what you're doing because God cares about stuff. He saves a world. It's incredibly physical. In fact, Jesus' body Himself tells us that. I've belabored the point long enough. I must move on. Salvation is not only about preservation of a physical embodied existence, but it's also about a promise. And this is where we're going to close. If you look at this text, you see that God Himself makes promises And it's in this language of covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. And then down in 16, 17, he says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember it. I will remember the everlasting covenant. Here it is, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God Himself is saying that I make a promise when I save that I will remember my promise with you to never again destroy the earth. And here's what he does. Do you see that language of bow? If you have the NIV, it says rainbow. And of course, that's what's in view. But the actual Hebrew word is the idea of a battle bow. A bow and arrow bow. And God has made the rainbow, so to speak, And He sets it in the sky to remind Him, the text says, to remind Him of His great covenant and love with us. And commentators love to point this out, that the rainbow doesn't go like this. Look at me. The rainbow doesn't go like this. It's not aimed down at us. Rather, it's turned up. And it's in its cocked position, right? As if to say, I will remember. Because if I don't, may the bow be leashed. May the arrow fly directly into my heart. Here is what I want you to see. The flood is undoubtedly about judgment. No doubt about it. But it is also about salvation. And all throughout the Bible, you get this tension of judgment and salvation that gets resolved in no other place but in the cross of Christ. You see, on the cross of Christ, you get the full expression of God's judgment being borne out on Jesus. 
But because of it, you get the full expression of His salvation and His grace offered to us. Here's why. Because on the cross, the bow was unleashed. And the arrow of His wrath did fly upon Jesus. And now you and me get all the benefits that Jesus Himself attained and acquired for us by His perfect life. I want to read you this uh, quote from uh, a pastor theologian named John Gerstner. He writes this, and this is where we'll end. Only the Christian Gospel presents a way in which justice and mercy kiss each other. I love that language. First, Christianity confirms the fact that justice must be satisfied. Sin must be condemned according to its demerit. But secondly, Christianity alone finds a way to satisfy infinite justice and provide infinite mercy at the same time. The justice of God was vindicated in full in the substitute, His own Son, our Savior dear. Perfect mercy and perfect justice in the Gospel of the Crucified. That is what the flood ultimately points to. God's justice and His mercy kissing in the person of Christ. This is for you tonight. I want you to believe it. I want you to see it. And I want you to see that God has dealt perfectly with everything that would stand between you and Him by delivering all of His wrath and all of His justice on the person of Jesus. And you get nothing but mercy and grace from now and forever. Listen. Look at me. You may have heard it a hundred times. Don't let it bore you tonight. Don't let it bore you. Beg God that you would wonder afresh at the Gospel tonight. I long for it to grip your heart. It is the best news that you can possibly hear tonight. 